Actor Geoffrey Rush has won a comprehensive victory against the Daily Telegraph newspaper. Last Thursday, the Federal Court awarded Rush $850,000 for non-economic damage. And there will be a further hearing to determine his economic damages, in other words, his lost income, and that could well run into the millions. Reluctant witness Erin Jean Norville and Geoffrey Rush may see things very differently, but they both agree on one point. I'm pleased to acknowledge the decisions made this afternoon by the Federal Court of Australia, but there are no winners in this case. It's been extremely distressing for everyone involved. As you all know, I never wanted these issues to be dealt with by a court. This case has caused hurt for everyone. There are no winners, only losers. Last Thursday, Justice Whitney of the Federal Court ruled that the Daily Telegraph newspaper had defamed actor Geoffrey Rush by claiming he had sexually harassed an actor later revealed to be Erin Jean Norville. The judge said, quote, This was a recklessly irresponsible piece of sensationalist journalism of the worst kind. End quote. Justice Whitney began his summary of his 178-page decision with the words, This is a sad and unfortunate case. It plainly would have been better for all concerned if the issues that arose in the saga that played out in this courtroom in October and November last year had been allowed to be dealt with in a different way and in a different place to the harsh and uncompromising adversarial world of a defamation proceeding. I'm joined by defamation law expert Professor David Rolfe from Sydney University Law School. Professor Rolfe, do you echo those sentiments? Yes, look, I mean, a defamation courtroom is a very sort of crude mechanism or an instrument to deal with a complex phenomenon like the experience of harassment in the workplace. Obviously, a defamation courtroom is adversarial. It's directed towards balancing the sort of competing interests between the plaintiff and the publisher. And it's very much directed towards those particular issues about the respective rights and interests of the plaintiff and the publisher. But the underlying subject matter here is much more complex. And I think the case here sort of reveals the tension between the requirements of one area of law like defamation law and the social and legal complexities posed by another phenomenon. You talk there about the competing interests of the plaintiff and the publisher. Of course, there's a third person here, that the complainant, Erin G. Norville, who was uh, almost against her will dragged into the court. Her credibility became the centre uh, oh. or the heart of this litigation and there are questions, I guess, about her interests. Mm-hmm. But before we talk about that in more detail, what were the publications that the judge found were defamatory? So there were three publications, one the very now famous or notorious front page King Lear with the large headline King Lear, L-E-E-R, and the photograph of Geoffrey Russian character, which set out the initial allegations and kicked this off. That was followed the following day by a sort of follow-up story, which was also sued upon. The third publication here was the poster suggesting scandal, which was posted up outside newsagents. These allegations all related to a production of King Lear at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016. It involved the relationship between actor Geoffrey Rush, King Lear, and the actress playing Cordelia, Erin Jean Norville. In a nutshell, I know they're they're complicated, but what were the allegations? Some of them were general imputations of being a pervert, but some of them were quite specific allegations about inappropriate conduct, sexually inappropriate conduct or scandalously inappropriate conduct 
in relation to the performance at the STC in King Lear. So I think it's important to note that the original story and indeed the follow-up story didn't name the actor in question. And it was only at some later point in time that Norval became involved. So she had made a sort of private complaint internally within the Sydney Theatre Company and that had been obviously disclosed to the journalist at the Daily Telegraph by some means. And it was only after the proceedings had commenced that Norval agreed to give evidence. And so the timeline here is that, you know, she wasn't a, didn't contribute to, didn't participate in the original story, in fact, had taken the position in dealing with her concerns that she didn't want to make them public in that way and certainly not through the Daily Telegraph. So at the trial, the Daily Telegraph argued the defence of truth. The only way they can do this is by having Erin G. Norval to give evidence mm-hmm. uh, about the events as she sees them. Things like at a rehearsal of the final scene, he's alleged to be hovering over the dead body and pretend to caress and, and grope her breasts, I think was one allegation, that he regularly made comments and jokes during rehearsals which contained innuendo, that he brushed a hand along one breast during a preview performance of King Lear. And then there were text messages. Well, the judge found that the paper could not establish truth on the balance of probabilities. And this all went to the credibility of this witness, this actress. Yeah, the defence of justification or truth, substantial truth became the main major issue. And so the question then becomes, well, in light of the evidence adduced by Rush, and Rush had a number of witnesses that were able to come forward and testify about particularly things relating to the rehearsal room and the performances themselves. And and ultimately, these allegations were either uncorroborated or, in fact, contradicted by witnesses, including people like uh, director Neil Armfield and, and prominent actor Robin Neville. There were a lot of people who were giving their versions of events. Yeah, uh, Rush had a substantial number of very prominent actors and theatre practitioners giving evidence in support of him who had participated in the production of Lear. And that was in contrast to uh, Norval, who was the sole witness for many of the instances for Nationwide News, Mark Winter as a witness as well, but only in relation to a limited number of the instances that were said to prove the truth of the allegations. But Wigney ultimately found none of those allegations were proven to be true. At the end of the day, what did the judge have to say about the evidence of Erin Jean Norval? Well, a significant difficulty here in relation to many of the instances was that he found that the evidence wasn't corroborated by any other witness. And so that's obviously a difficulty in proving that you've made out your case on the balance of probabilities. He also found in a number of instances that the evidence that was given was not credible because in some instances it was inconsistent with uh, contemporaneous or subsequent behaviour engaged in by Norval. And so really then the credibility of that evidence becomes a sort of focus of whether the defence of truth has been made out. The judge described Norval as, quote, prone to exaggeration and embellishment. Uh, On the other hand, he said she presented as intelligent, articulate and confident. I mean, what was he saying? Was he saying that she was lying or that she just had a different perspective? What was he saying? Well, no. I mean, in fact, he was at pains to say that um, he wasn't finding that she was lying. And the assessment of her prone to embellishment of evidence was, I think, most significantly in the context of 
the suggestion that other people in the rehearsal room had been complicit. Complicit in not giving evidence it, which would support her? Well, no, complicit, I, I think, in not calling out or giving evidence to the effect that this behaviour had occurred or that there were problems in the rehearsal room. And I think the sort of the characterisation of that by Norval was what led him particularly to suggest that there was a proneness to exaggeration there. So I think it's very important to indicate that he was at pains to find that she wasn't lying. And what he was doing here is sort of sifting through the evidence to make findings of credibility in relation to each of the particular instances, which would then accumulate to prove the substantial truth of, of the imputations here. I stand by everything I said at trial. I told the truth. I know what happened. I was there. I was not ultimately persuaded that Ms Norval was an entirely credible witness or that her evidence about the allegations was reliable. Before summarising the issues that I had with Ms Norval's evidence, I should emphasise that in assessing the reliability of Ms Norval's evidence, I was acutely conscious of and had regard to the difficulties and disadvantages that are often encountered by complainants in cases involving allegations of sexual harassment. We are living through complicated and rapidly changing times. We need to make genuine cultural change in our professions and industries. We can do it, but only if we acknowledge and confront with honesty the problems and the complexities of the power imbalances in our workplaces. David Rolfe, where does this leave women who want to come forward, even confidentially, to their employers to discuss feeling unsafe, harassed at work. What message does this decision send to those women? Well, one of the things that I think is important to emphasise is that this was a defamation proceeding between a plaintiff and a publisher, and so that really was what the case was about. But I think it's difficult to divorce the treatment of Norval from that, the way which she was treated in this proceeding. It would be difficult, I mean, from the perspective of prospective complainants not to feel whether or not their concerns are legitimate or not, that there might be a sort of chilling effect. How did the judge describe the journalism of the Daily Telegraph? Well, I think you can't <laughs> avoid taking away from the judgment Wigney's sort of scathing criticism of the journalism here, um, describing it as being sort of sensationalist journalism of the worst kind. And the nature of the journalism here, I think, was a very significant factor. And of course, one of the points that should be made, I think, is that there are very many ways in which you can ventilate issues of concern about allegations of workplace harassment. Significantly, I think, of course, that should involve the consent of and the participation of the people who are making the complaints or who are the victims of conduct. But that wasn't, of course, this case. This was a sort of sensationalist expose of the very worst kind without the factual basis to support the making of very grave and serious allegations and conveying those in a very sort of sensationalist way. On that point, on the steps of the court, Erin Jean Norval thanked Yael Stone. Uh, she's an Australian actor. She was interviewed by the 7.30 program last year. What did she say and why do we think no legal action by Geoffrey Rush has ensued from that publication as opposed to the Daily Telegraph publication? Well, Stone made some allegations about Rush's conduct, but the way in which that was 
conveyed was in this long-form interview, I think, that occupied the whole half hour of an episode of 7.30. And it obviously involved her consent. She was an active participant in that telling of that story. And although the allegations that were ventilated in that program were serious, the method of journalism there was more sober and dispassionate, involved more probing questioning, and certainly wasn't attended by anything approaching a sort of front page the Daily Telegraph used in its story. And so I think one of the things, of course, is that the way in which you deal with stories of public interest is very important as to whether you're going to expose yourself as a publisher to liability. And the exposure of the Daily Telegraph in this particular case to very substantial liability, I think, was in significant measure due to the way in which it chose to report this story. Professor David Rolfe, defamation law expert based at the University of Sydney Law School. And I should emphasise, in relation to the claims of inappropriate behaviour made by Yale Stone, Geoffrey Rush has said that they are incorrect and in some instances taken completely out of context. I'm Damien Carrick. On RN or available as a podcast, this is The Law Report.